welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. We are pleased to bring you the message from this week's worship service. For more information about this message, this week's teacher, and to watch or see other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Let me pray for us, and then we'll, we'll jump in. Father, thanks for this time together. And God, thanks for your grace. We sang about it this morning. This grace in which we stand. Lord, there is, there is nothing that we have that is not a result of your grace. Nothing good that we have, Lord, especially our salvation. Most of all, our salvation. You rescued us from our sin and we stand firmly, not in our works or our abilities, but in your finished work, your grace. Father, would you, uh, would you speak to us this morning? Would you soften our hearts, give us ears to hear, to, to receive and understand what you would have us receive and understand this morning? Lord, use me as your vessel. Just simply um, speak through me for your glory, I ask. And we give this time to you. We thank you for what you'll do here in these next few minutes together. In Jesus' name, amen. No, I am not going to paint for you this morning, at least not in any significant way. But I, I did want to have, I did have a, a visual image up here for us to orient us to where we're going this morning. And, and I wanted there to be something that would signify the church. Now, I want to be clear and say that the church is not a building. It's signified in this image that we have here as a building. But the church is us. The church is not within these walls. The church is God's people, empowered and uh, uh, that we have Jesus in us empowered to live as we come here to worship, certainly corporately, but as we go into the world, we are the church. But as it is in this image, it's signified by this, this old-timey church building that I think is just beautiful. And around it, you'll notice these tiles, these light-colored tiles that are really what that's representing is that we as the church are to be the light of God, the light of Christ in the world. That we would exude, that we would be the vessel corporately that would exude to the world around us and display to the world around us in magnificent ways the magnificence of God, the glory of God, the beauty of Christ. That everything about us as we live and work and play would point to him. Now, this was the plan of God from the very beginning. If you go back to Genesis 1 and 2, this is where you see what we commonly call the cultural mandate, where, where God gives instructions to Adam and Eve to, to be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over the earth. And what that, in essence, is saying is saying, fill the earth with God worshipers. Reign in the earth in such a way to where the glory of God and the greatness of God and the beauty of God would be displayed through his people corporately in all the world. So that's the original design of God. It wasn't called the church back then, but this is the heart of God, to do that through his people. But then sin came, Genesis 3. And as sin came into the world, and as sin, more importantly, came into our hearts, it ruined everything. It ruined everything about us and God and our relationship with him and separated us from him. But it, it ruined our ability to be what he called us to be corporately. And so as a result... There's all kinds of sin that exists within the church. 
And the more that we allow sin to exist and to persist in the church, the more that we are incapable of being what he's called us to be. There's a lot of isms that exist far too often within the church. There's individualism, there's consumerism, there's materialism, there's, there's classism, there's sexism, there's racism. All kinds of isms that, that sometimes knowingly, sometimes unknowingly, sometimes subtly, sometimes not so subtly exist within God's people. And the, and the more that we allow sin to exist and persist within the church, within God's people, then what begins to happen is we begin to lose our ability to be what we are to be to the, to the watching world. And the church, instead of displaying the light and the glory and the grandeur and the glory and the, the majesty of God, is darkened. And sadly, far too often, what the world sees when they look at church they look at us and look at what happens in here and out there through us as they, they look at something and it's so blurred and darkened that they go, I don't, I don't really see anything that's a whole lot different from the rest of the world. And instead of being a conduit through which we reflect a life-altering, life-changing, transforming God that is against the current of sinful culture, Oftentimes we move with the current, and our, our light is darkened. The good news is this, is that Scripture gives us an incredibly clear, and I'm going to use a word next that has become a little bit of a cliche term in Christian circles. It's just been used so much, but I'm going to use it because it's, it's accurate, and that is radical. That, that Scripture gives us a clear and even radical picture of what the church is to be. Of what we are to be as a part of this organism called the church. So in the coming weeks, we'll be seeing what the book of Ephesians tells us about the church. We're going to be looking at two and a half chapters of Ephesians. Today we'll start in the second half of chapter 2. By the end of the five weeks, we will have covered chapters 3 and 4. And these two and a half chapters are perhaps the, the most significant chapters in all the New Testament, all the Bible of instructing us and giving us a picture of what the church is to look, out, look like. So just so you kind of know where we're headed this week, I'll, I'll hit on the foundation of the church. Next week, I'll lead us through the purpose of the church in the first part of chapter 3 of Ephesians. In week 3, Caleb will lead us through the empowerment of the church, and then uh, he'll lead us again in week 4 through the unity of the church. And then Bob Cargo will wrap it up for us in week 5 with new life in the church. We've been praying that this would be a series that would open the eyes of so many of us to see clearly what we are to be as the people of God. So turn with me to Ephesians 2. And we'll start reading in verse 11. If you don't have your Bibles, it's okay. It'll be on the screen. It'll also be printed in your bulletin on the back side of the, of the Points to Remember page. If you do have your Bibles, start with me. And Ephesians 2, 11 says this. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. This is simply saying the Gentiles are referred to by the Jews as those who are uncircumcised. They use that, the Jews use that as a reason to look down upon the Gentiles. You haven't been circumcised like we have. And, and Paul is simply saying, look, these are things that are done in the flesh. These are things that ultimately don't matter because they're not a matter of the heart. 
He says in verse 12, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, I want you to understand something about the structure of what Paul is doing here in Ephesians chapter 2. If you were to go back, we didn't read it, but if you were to go back to Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, you're going to see a certain structure flow to what he's doing and how he's laying out his presentation. And you're also going to see in 11 through 22 the same exact flow in structure to what he's presenting to us. And in 1 through 10, he, he starts out by saying, this is what you were. This is what Christ has done. Now this is what you are to be. This is who you are now. So in, in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2, you can, I'd love for you to go back on your own this week and read these 10 verses. But he starts out by saying things like, you were dead in the trespasses of your sin in which you once walked. You followed the way of the world, the prince of the power of the air, that you were by nature children of wrath. He's wanting them to see and enter back into the bad news. It was not good. And then in verse 4 he says, but... God, being rich in mercy and with the great love with which he has loved us, has made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And then he continues on this theme of grace through verses 6 and 7 and 8 and 9. By grace you have been saved, not by works. It is a gift of God that no one should boast. And then verse 10. So then, because of what Christ has done, walk in good works. He has created you for good works. Now, If you take that structure and you put it on top of 11 through 22, it's the same exact structure. He tells us in the first part of 11 through 22, remember, Gentiles, remember who you were. Remember what was true of you. And then he gives certain things that I'll come back to in just a minute that explains what was true of them. And then he says, remember what Christ has done. And then he says, now this is who you are now. Go and be that. And, and the cool thing is, as I was studying this, is that 1 through 10 is, is a call to remember that individually. This is what's true of you in your own heart. You were dead. Now God has made you alive. You're saved by grace. Now go walk in it. 11 through 22 is what we're to remember and be corporately. This is who you were corporately. This is what Christ has done. Now he's what he's doing through his people, the church, corporately. Now go be that. So I want to give you that insight that, that framework, if you will, as we think about this, these words that we just read in 11 through 22. Now, let me give you some cultural context as well. You'll notice in what we just read, there's a lot of language about Jew and Gentile. A lot of directive comments from Paul about Gentiles. 
I don't want to assume anything. I think many of us know, but maybe not all of us, that what Gentile means is non-Jew. Anybody who is not Jewish is Gentile. So I'm going to assume that pretty much everybody, if not everybody in this room, is a Gentile. I'm a Gentile. I did not grow up Jewish. I'm not of Jewish ancestry. And more than likely, you aren't either. We may have a few in the room that are, but we are Gentiles. Now, I want you to understand the cultural context of what was going on between Jew and Gentile in first century ancient Middle East, what Paul was dealing with as he's writing this letter to Ephesus. And and to sum it up, it's basically this. The Jews hated the Gentiles. And you may say, okay, you're being a pastor, you're you're just doing that for, for preaching effect, for dramatic effect, just to exaggerate and say, no, 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 they hated them. Listen to this quote from, you can read along with me, it'll be on the screen from William Barclay. It says this, the Jew had an immense contempt for the Gentile. The Gentile said the Jews were created by God to be fuel for the fires of hell. God, they said, loves only Israel of all the nations that he had made. It was not even lawful to render help to a Gentile mother in her hour of sorest need, for that would simply be to bring another Gentile into the world. Until Christ came, the Gentiles were an object of contempt to the Jews. The barrier between them was absolute. If a Jewish boy married a Gentile girl, or if a Jewish girl married a Gentile boy, the funeral of that Jewish boy or girl was carried out right away. Because such contact with a Gentile was equivalent of death. So when I say they hated the Gentiles, I'm not exaggerating. There was great contempt and disdain. Now, the temple even itself spoke to how things were even structured, how the temple was structured to keep Gentiles on the outside. Listen to this quote from John Stott. He's explaining the second great temple that was built by Herod the Great. This is the temple that would have been in place when Paul was writing this. It says, The temple building itself was constructed on an elevated platform. Around it was the court of the priests. East of this was the court of Israel, and further east, the court of the women. These three courts for the priests, the laymen, and the laywomen of Israel, respectively, were all on the same elevation as the temple itself. From this level, one descended five steps to a walled platform, and then on the other side of the wall, 14 more steps to another wall, beyond which was the outer court, or what was referred to as the court of the Gentiles. Now, on this outer wall that would have kept the Gentiles from entering into the temple would have been signs that would have been posted all around the wall. I don't want you to think of signs like a stop sign, a little thin metal thing, whatever. These were big, large cuts of limestone that would have been engraved with words on them. And they've actually found a couple of these. They found one, archaeologists found one in 1871. They found another in 1935. And on that first one that they found, it read this. It said, No foreigner may enter within the barrier and enclosure around the temple. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. So let's just say that the Jews were not all that into seeker-sensitive church, right? They hated the Gentiles. Now you may argue and say, well, Jeff, you may be familiar with the Old Testament. Say, Jeff, uh, but with the temple, as it's concerned with the temple, these were instructed instructions by God. He's the one who laid out the dimensions of the temple. He's the one who told his people to build it this way. And you say, yeah, you're right, but... It was never to be something that the, that the people of God were to use as a way to judge and alienate others in such a way that they didn't ever welcome them and display to them the love of God. How do I know this? It's clear in Scripture. Look at Leviticus 
Chapter 19, verse 34. This is a direct law in Leviticus from God to his people. It says, The stranger who sojourns with you shall be to you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you are strangers in the land of Egypt. He's saying this. He's saying, look, remember what you were, Israel. Remember what you were. You were sojourners and aliens in a world at one point. You were in Egypt. You weren't accepted. You, you were cut off from the land. You didn't belong where you belonged. And look at what I did for you. Remember what I've done. I took you out of that land. I rescued you. I saved you. And I put you in a place, not because of anything that you did, but because of my gracious hand. And so remember what you were so that you, then you can be what I've called you to be, which is a light to the nations. And see, what happened is, is that the Jewish people, the Israelites, is they, they, they misconstrued and they misapplied and they misunderstood what God's intentions were for them to be. They misunderstood that they were to be the avenue through which that they would be a light to the nations. And so what they did is they walled themselves off all the more, not just in the temple, but in life. And they hated the foreigner. They hated the ones who weren't like them. Now, I've already laid out for you the three points that I'm going to give you today because it's straight from the text. But I want us to go back and I want us to zoom in on verses 11 through 22 and see how this plays out in the instructions that Paul's given us here. First thing I want you to take is this. I want you to remember, we got to remember what we were. Got to remember who you were. Verse 11 says twice, in, in, once in verse 11 and once in verse 12, this word Remember. And Paul uses five words to call the Gentiles to remember what they were. Here they are. He says, you were separated. Specifically, he says, you were separated from Christ. Then he says, alienated. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. So just in the first two, right away, he's helping them see that sin affects everything about us. Both everything vertically, that you were separated from God. And then everything horizontally, that you are alienated from God's people. So sin has an effect on everything. It's not just a vertical thing. It's a horizontal thing. It's everything. So we're separated from Christ. We're alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. We're strangers to the covenants of promise. And really, most literally, that reads the covenants of the promise. And so Paul's referring back to Genesis 12 and 15, where God made a promise with Abraham. And the promise was, as I've already referred to, through you, Abraham, all nations will be blessed. The seed of Abraham, all nations will be blessed. It's a foreshadowing of Christ, but it's what God's people were to be. It wouldn't be fully fulfilled until Jesus came, but this is what was to happen through God's people. And then he says two phrases here. He says two phrases that are, that are cutting as to who we were apart from Christ. He says... You were a people, verse 12, the very end of verse 12, having no hope and without God in the world. Could there be anything more devastating than those two phrases? Having no hope and without God in the world. This is who we were. It's not a pretty picture. And if that were the end of the story and I ended the sermon, you'd say, that's the worst sermon I've ever heard. But it keeps going. Second point, remember what Jesus has done. Remember the flow of 1 through 10 and 11 through 12. This is who you were, but remember what I've done. Remember what Christ 
has done. And I'm just going to quickly go through some of the highlights of 13 through 18. I want you to go back and read it more in depth. But let me just highlight what Christ has done for us. Straight from the text, verse 13, he has brought us near by his blood. Think back to Easter last week. He's on the cross. He's bleeding profusely. Why? For you, for me. He's pouring out his blood. He's bleeding to death on the cross. Why? So that he can draw you and me near. Bring us into a relationship with him. Verse 14, he himself is our peace. I love that language. He himself is our peace. He's not just one who preaches peace. We'll talk about that. It's in the text as well. But he is peace. He is the very avenue. He is the only avenue through which we have peace. Peace with God and peace with each other. Again in verse 14, he has made us one. He's made us one, and he's referring to Jew and Gentile. He's saying he's taken these two parties, and he's made them one. I'll come back to this thought because it connects with the next thought that he gives. He's broken down the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. Verse 15, he has made one new man in place of the two. You're no longer Jew and Gentile. You're one new man in Christ. Your identity is no longer Jew. Your identity is no longer Gentile. Your identity is Jesus. And you're united in him. Verse 16, he is reconciling us both to God in one body through the cross. We both now have direct access to him. Verse 17, I mentioned it. says that he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. There's no question that Paul includes this because he wants his Old Testament readers, the Jews, he wants them to understand that Jesus is the fulfillment of Isaiah 57, 19 that says, peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord. And then in verse 18, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Now I want you to, I want you to get something here. What Paul is saying, what God is saying through Paul is mind-blowing. Now, it may not be mind-blowing to you right now in 21st century America, but to 1st century Jew and Gentile, what he's writing them is radical. It's crazy. It's unheard of. It's unthinkable. It's unimaginable. He's saying two people who live in the same land but absolutely hate each other are saying, through Jesus now, he's saying, you no longer have an identity in what you are ancestrally. You now have a new identity in Christ, and you are to die to both of these and become one. And the dividing wall of hostility that used to exist between the two of you is gone. This is nuts. I want you to think about your greatest enemy. And I don't want you to think individually. I don't want you to think um, immediately of a name. I want you to think, who would be our greatest enemy as a people? Maybe it's ISIS. I don't know. But right now, ISIS is a great threat to us and America, but even to the church. But here's the difference. ISIS, for, most, for the most part, collectively lives on the other side of the world, right? And we're here. But think about this. What if ISIS lived among us? What if ISIS's headquarters were right here in the greater Atlanta area, and we were doing life with them every day, and we absolutely, hate, absolutely hated them, and they absolutely hated us? And then Jesus shows up in such a profound way that God, through Christ, says... We are going to do a work in you and through you, we being the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, through the Son of God that unites enemies and breaks down dividing walls of hostility that we think there is absolutely no hope will ever be broken down. 
but only through Christ. This is what Paul is saying. He's not just saying, hey, you like this, and you like this, and I know you have some subtle differences, but hey, get over that and hang out together. No, it's you hate each other, but Jesus unites. And it's the gospel lived out, is it not? Because we hated God. We hated him. While we were still dead in our sin, Christ died for us. While we were enemies of God, spitting in his face with our sin, saying we have nothing to do with you. No one is good. No one is right. No one wants God or chases after him, the scripture says. But yet he moved towards us to rescue us. And so then he says collectively as a people, you live out the gospel in such a way that you would do the same towards your enemies, towards those who aren't like you. Listen, I want to be clear about something. The call that Scripture gives us to remember the gospel, to remember what you were and what you are now, is not a call to mere intellectual or theological agreement. It's not an exercise where you and I go, oh yeah, I mean, I I used to be in sin and defined by that, and now I'm in Christ, and that's really cool. I'll just worship on Sundays. It's way more than that. The call to remember the gospel is not a theological or intellectual agreement. It is a daily, habitual, life-altering application to where as we apply the work of Christ to our lives, everything about us is different. Everything. Vertically and horizontally. Because the kingdom of God, the church, is a place where where, where alienation is given way to reconciliation, where hostility is given way to peace. And we're to reflect that in the world around us. Too often there's three common applications of the gospel, two of which is what we don't want. Let me run through these really quickly. The first is many people view the gospel and what Christ has done for us simply as a a my ticket to heaven approach. There's really no vertical or horizontal life change. It's just simply, hey, oh, I'm I'm down with Jesus because he gets me out of hell. Secondly, there's the, my faith is between me and God approach. Doesn't really change anything about how I do life with you on a daily basis, but I, I'm, I'm good with God and I'll pray. And, you know, I'm, I don't know that I'll actually show up to church, but this whole, this whole God thing, it's a, it's a secret thing between me and him. But no social alteration in how we do life as a result of Jesus in us. Thirdly, this is what we want. We want the Jesus changes everything approach. The gospel so transforms us, Jesus so transforms us through his spirit in us that we are different at every level and in every way. Slowly but surely, it's not overnight, it's a process called sanctification, but we are letting him renovate us and change us. Let me give you a story of how this looks. Recently, I came across this story from a pastor out in San Diego. I don't know him personally, but I was riveted by this story that I got sent to me as a this is his newsletter that he sent out via email and he had this little blurb in there he's got this group that he calls club 102 and you'll see right off the bat why he calls it that he says after church i i recently had lunch with four guys who had a collective 102 years in prison in this club 102 two men are mexican and two are white tattoos covering most of their bodies in prison they hated one another They weren't allowed to talk, much less have a meal together. To do so meant that they would be jumped and shamed. Why? Because everything in the prison is run by gangs that are race-driven. 
But then Jesus got a hold of their hearts, and they joined a new gang called the church that is grace-driven. One of them, Carlos, recently said to me, the church on the inside looks so different than what I thought it would look. In prison, everything was about race, but not in the church. In the church, everything was about grace, and grace took us over the lines. Now, he's talking about his experience of church as he experienced it with his, with his pastor, Stephen, and the guys that Stephen would bring in from the church. But listen to this next sentence. But then when we got out of prison, we saw just the opposite. We saw churches that looked just like all the gangs in prison. They were race-driven, not grace-driven. Now listen, I'm not saying that the only application to this gospel remembrance is race. But you can't teach this text and not talk about it. I know we've talked about it a lot as a church. You may be saying, Jeff, stop beating a dead horse. But it's in the text. It's there. You can't talk about Jew and Gentile and not talk about how God does a a crazy, amazing, miraculous work as he breaks down the walls of hostility between races and ethnicities and cultures. To bring us under this new umbrella of the kingdom of God. But listen, it's not just race. We can build walls of hostility in so many different ways. We can do it socioeconomically. If you don't have this certain level of income and way of life, you don't really have anything to do with me. We can do it politically. If you don't hold to my political political belief, then I will draw a, a line and a wall of hostility will be built between you and me. We will even do it within our own race. I, I think back, I, immediately I think back to when I was in college. I'm at a major college, in a major uh, southern college where this is really typical. And I'm, I'm in a white group called a fraternity. Fraternity and sororities, Greek houses on these campuses. And it's this white group here who looks down upon other white students over here because they're not Greek. They're independent, right? And do you realize how stupid this is? Right? You realize how just absolutely, you stop and think about this, it's crazy, it's asinine. I even heard, I remember hearing guys in my fraternity say things like, yeah, that dude's not cool, I'm not hanging out with him. Why? Because he's independent. Really? That's it? He didn't have Greek letters on his chest, so he's not worthy. You went to high school with this guy. Yeah, but he didn't go Greek. What? And you go, oh, that's a college thing. No, 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 we do it as adults all the time. We will construct walls of hostility and division in our lives along so many different lines and we forget they're there because we get so comfortable in our life. And what the gospel of Jesus does to us is he begins to show us through his scriptures where these walls are and he says, yeah, I want to I break that one down right there. I want to destroy that one right there because that's what I came to do. I came to destroy the works of the devil. That's straight from 1 Peter. Will you let me do that? Will you repent of where you're letting walls of hostility knowingly exist in your life and in your heart? Will you let me take that down? Will you let me change everything? Or will you just let me change what you're comfortable with? Because my kingdom is not about your comfort. My kingdom is about my glory and what I came to do that is so different from the world. Third point, very quickly. In light of that, we've got to remember who we are now and what we're to be. Look at verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, 
But you are fellow citizens, fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. How? Why? How does this even happen? Verse 20 through 22 is how it happens. Listen, before we read it. What I am not saying and what the scriptures are not saying, what Paul is not saying, what God is not saying is try harder and be better. Grit your teeth and just do better. That's not the message to hear. The message to hear is that we can't be better. Our only hope is to fling ourselves on the one who can make us new. It's not that we need to be better. It's that we need to be transformed by Jesus. And as we build his church, and he is building his church through us. He he is. It's It's a finality. It's not is he building it. He is building it. And as he builds his church through us, he must be the foundation and he must be the cornerstone. Look at verses 20 through 22. We are being built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. What did the apostles and the prophets teach? They taught Jesus. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Did you know a cornerstone? We don't, we don't often get the, 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 uh, the uh, significance of a cornerstone in this day and age. But back then it was everything to a building. When you set that cornerstone for a building, it, it set the trajectory for everything else is, is, is how that building is going to be built. You set the cornerstone and then you attach strings to it and you pull a straight line this way and this way and up. And, and the lines of that structure are going to be set completely and totally by the cornerstone. So Jesus is our cornerstone. And the, and the struggle for us is this. The struggle is that we, it's so easy to let other things creep in and be the cornerstone. You, you think about the sun and the solar system. Jesus is the solar system of the church. He is at the center. He is the cornerstone. And oftentimes, because of our sin nature, we will slowly butt him out and let other things be the cornerstone. There are far too many churches that exist. The cornerstone of the church is racial Socioeconomic sameness. That's the cornerstone. And Jesus says, I know it hurts, but get me back in the middle. And build on me. And watch what I do. I don't think that, I think we're moving in that direction. I look around right now and I see, man, there's, there's different races and ethnicities in here. I think it's beautiful, but there's, there's a lot more to do. And it's not just racially. In so many different ways, let's let Jesus break down the walls. And do his work among us. And when that happens, watch what happens. When we make Jesus the cornerstone and we give him freedom to do as he longs to do in and through us. Then slowly but surely, he begins to wipe away the effects of our sin and our light is restored. Now some of you are saying, Jeff, you're not doing a really good job of wiping that off. And that's on purpose. I'm going to wipe a little bit more away. But there's, there's still residue. There's still sin in our life. We won't be perfect until Christ returns. The perfect church doesn't exist. But as we allow Jesus to be the cornerstone in such a way that he does his work through us, our light gets brighter and brighter and brighter. Let me say it this way. His light gets brighter and brighter and brighter. Let's be that church. Let me pray. Father, thanks for this time together. Thank you for your grace in our lives. Thank you for your work in our lives, that you are continually moving and shaping us into what you would have us be. Thank you for the truth of your word that pierces us and convicts us where we need to be convicted and 
encourages us where we need to be encouraged. But most of all, Lord, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he is the cornerstone, and may we be a people who recognize ways in which we're trying to build and other, other stones, not him. And, and may we be quick to come back to Christ as the cornerstone on which we build. Not for our fame, not for our glory, but only for yours. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.